Hello. Welcome back. Hope you've all been well. We've been Brexiting still. Yeah, some really interesting kind of, I guess, sensations. Mm. Like, it's like Groundhog Day, yeah. some people have said. Yeah. Um, it just goes on and on and on. Never ends. Never ends. Maybe someday we'll do a post-Brexit podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is not it. This is not it. What is? What are we talking about today? Uh, we're not talking about Brexit today. We're not talking about Trump today. We, we have nothing else to talk about. We have nothing else to talk about. <laughs> What's happened to us? <laughs> we are talking about... This is a two-parter. Um, and it's a two-parter that we've been talking about doing since the early days of the podcast, I think. And we just haven't done it. And we haven't done it, I think we've just sort of had a chat about it just mm. now. And I think one mm. of the reasons we haven't done it is because we've never been very clear in our minds about what takeaway we'd mm. like to give you mm. from it. Because we still don't really know. But yeah. it's something that I think we we feel like we're ready to talk about. Yeah. Um, we're talking about in the next two episodes, diet and exercise. Okay. And we are, of course, linking them because they are inextricably linked uh, socially and sometimes biologically yeah. and physiologically. Economically. Economically. Yeah. Um, we're talking about diet this week and we'll talk about exercise next week. This episode, yeah. well, these episodes came yeah. out of uh, less academic conversations yeah. and more yeah. out of kind of friendship yeah. conversations yeah. about yeah. how you doing, how's it going, what's up, um, around... Um, kind of stuff happening in our personal lives. Yeah, the, the way we, the gap between the way we think we look and the way we think we want to look and the processes, experiences that we are willing to put ourselves through in order to try to get closer to what we think we should look like. Yeah, originally I had thought three years ago or however long ago it was mm. now that I would interview you Yeah. about your experiences. Oh, yeah. Things have changed a little bit since then, so mm. I think these episodes are gonna gonna be uh, kind of more nuanced mm. Mm. than that. Yeah. Um, but it it did start with you sort of announcing that you were doing something. Yeah. So over the I mean over the last perhaps decade or close close enough uh, to a last a last decade, I've tried at various points to lose weight. Uh, I've tried various different things. I've tried exercise. I've tried dieting at home. I've tried joining various uh, slimming dieting institutions. And I'll talk more about those experiences in a second. Um, I've said before on, in this podcast, I'm the son of two doctors. So the health benefits, uh, uh, so-called, of losing weight, has have, they've always been sort of present in my mind. I'm male. I'm South Asian. I have a family history of heart disease so there are lots of quote-unquote sound evidence-based scientific reasons why it, it would be good for me to lose weight uh, and throughout it throughout the last 10 years that I've been doing this I've also been an academic doing critical theory as a day job and um, the contradictions between these two versions of me became more and more pronounced uh, and I guess that's one way we could think about 
situating this episode in, in this contradiction between these two aspects of our lives. Yeah, at the time you had you had gone back to Weight Watchers. Yeah. You've done it before so you were familiar with it yes. and you had decided to go back and get yeah. back into it. Yeah. And I think you were cooking for me and I think it was it was a yeah. Weight Watchers friendly yeah. meal that you yeah. were cooking for me and you were explaining yeah. to me the various components of yeah. the meal and what Weight mm. Watchers was yeah. would allow you to eat yeah. and what it wouldn't and yeah. what kind of um, trade-offs you would have to make and um, and I found I found it so interesting yeah. from an intellectual perspective yeah. because I have I have a very different mm. uh, relationship with with food and exercise mm. from you. We're, we're subject. I think the similar pressure mm. is there, yeah. but the way that it manifests for us is different. Yeah. And so I kind of thought this is a this is great for the podcast. Yeah. Like we yes. could totally kind of unpack yeah. what you're doing, but also. Mm also include you in it like yeah. y- you know you're doing yeah. it yeah. so yeah. what's it like and yeah. and how do you yeah. feel as a kind of critical academic um perhaps the most memorable moment of um my edinburgh based weight watchers experience was um weight watchers often meet meet in church halls and typically the church halls will be used for a whole host of different things including school groups kids groups scouts groups and so on and so forth and um, also i would add yeah other uh forms of kind of mental health care so um groups that work around uh addiction for example also yeah 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 use church halls yeah um and i remember the the church hall that that particular weight watchers group uh used to meet uh in on the wall there's a a sign that clearly one of the kids groups had put together uh, and it was a sign about the rules that we have to follow in, in this kids group and they drew a it was a painting and they listed all the rules and um, I think there were some someone's like you know don't don't talk over someone else or share share nicely or whatever and I think fourth or fifth in the list of rules was obey all rules and it's just the Foucauldian nightmare of that that all of this the the intersection of all of these different institutions you know so you have you have education you have church you have Weight watchers, yeah. uh, all of it coming together in order to um to reinforce uh this sort of ideal um obeying obedient compliant subject um and the the irony of on the one hand realizing quite how horrible i i felt the whole thing was in terms of so yeah so you're talking about uh the intersection of all the institutions the sort of yeah. COVID, and you're you're analyzing it as you're in the as place. i'm as i'm and as i'm as i feel myself subject to it as i feel sad if I haven't managed to lose weight that day or feel happy if I have. Um, and that kind of in-your-body and out-of-body experience was really fascinating. Yeah. So what's the process? Um, so obviously, I would imagine some of our listeners have experienced programs like Weight Watchers. And um, Watchers. It depends from group to group. Some groups have a sort of very happy, smiley, cheery group leader who chats to you through the day or through the meeting rather uh 
sometimes they don't have that. Uh, what they always do have is uh, a bit of the meeting where you all stand in a queue in front of the weighing scales and you take off as much of your you take off your shoes and as much of your outer clothing as you feel comfortable with and trying desperately to help the needle go down as it were and then one after another you stand on the scales um it's just not, the way that you paint that picture just sounds really fascist it, it, there is something quite fascistic it about it. It sounds really... And, and obviously it's it's something... It's an image that is culturally yeah. uh, recognizable to us. Obviously yeah. there's... And there's more kind of TV programs yeah. and, and cultural representation yeah. of this experience yeah. now. Yeah. But also it's associated with athletes. Yeah. But also it's like... I think we can oversell the dystopian nature of it, right? The... There are people for whom their weekly Weight Watchers meeting is part of their social life. Yeah. There are people who've made friends through Weight Watchers. There've been, or you know, other slimming institutions are available. Um, and there are people who are who most people, presumably, given that they choose to do it and they, they choose to 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 pay for for the use of the services, feel like they get something out of it. Uh, and it becomes kind of ritualized where you go, ooh, I wonder how much I've lost this week or have I not managed to lose anything? And you get it written down in a little book that you get to keep. Um, and it's sort of somehow at once uh, life-affirming and soul-destroying and infantilizing and reinforcing and liberating and all, all of those things at the same time. Um, At a certain point, the critical theory the, can't always provide. The critical theory for me, critical theory for me, prov is helpful and useful and interesting up until the point where you stand on the scales. Yeah, that's the point when theory loses you, or loses me rather. Yeah. So what's it like? Given that it's yeah. it's not really a sort of verbalizable kind of explicable feeling but if you could try and describe that experience that sort of embodied moment um i i have a very uh unhelpful attitude to most problems in life which is if i ignore it it'll go away uh so i'll stand on it and go oh sh shit i've gained a few more kilos oh, that'll be fine and then i'll go away and have cake or whatever um, and it's not like I, I've read about, you know, emotional aspects to overeating and I've read about, you know, connections between depression and various mental health disorders and overeating and all of those things. Um, my problem is that I like food too much and I can convince myself that that extra thing that I'm eating now on on its own it won't make a difference and of course it will and it does and critical theory can't explain to me necessarily that relationship that i have with food uh critical theory can't explain to me why it mat why it should matter so much that i'm not the way i should be 
even apart from the acceptance of whatever health risks that might be that might involve um, critical theory can help me understand why people feel um, bound to hegemonic rules what critical theory can't explain to me is why once I've identified the problems with the hegemonic rules why I still can't get over them yeah and I think at a deep level why emotionally mm. and affectively mm. you can't get over them mm. Mm. And, and I, I can't get over them to the point where you know it's sort of it's that paradox right where I if I accept I I I can identify the the fascistic nature of body re- regulation, but it's I still let it bother me. But when it bothers me, I don't forget about the fact that I've just realized that this is fascistic. It's it it goes both ways, in the not being able to explain it. Yeah, it doesn't make it feel any different. No, it's just now you have some explanations. For structurally, yeah. why you're being made to feel it. Yes, but that doesn't stop you from feeling it. Yeah. And there's also, we we're talking about not just the fascistic nature, but also the capitalist yeah. nature of, yeah. of a lot of this, where um, you have the, I mean, essentially the the cycle of, of consumption and all its complexity, yeah. which is that um, you have, you know, a capitalist system that's essentially trying to sell you stuff. Yeah. So, it sells you food to eat and then it mm. sells you, you know, media materials mm. that tell you that the food mm-hmm. you're eating is bad for you and here's how to fix it mm. and it sells you this solution and so it continues to sell based on yeah. where you are in the cycle. Yeah, so the, so the, other, the other aspect of the Weight Watchers meeting that I didn't mention is there is typically a table which has recipe books and weighing scales and uh, Weight Watchers... L- you know, low-calorie cookies and yeah, they have bread a whole and cakes line, and stock cubes and pasta sauces and um, and their their whole food range is, is sold in supermarkets, but it is also sold there. And you know, there is a plan that you can either pay per meeting or you can sign up for like six months or whatever. They have it all figured out, um, and you are essentially paying. If unless you access a lot of their other merchandise, most of which you have to pay for anyway, what you are paying is to go somewhere and weigh yourself once a week. And for the the public audience. For the public audience, yes. Um, which is quite a clever business plan. It's fascinating. It is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I feel like I should mention um, around. Around the time that you were, that you went back to Weight Watchers, mm. um, a, a book, a novel had been recommended to me by a, a good friend of mine from way back in the day, Ashley, shout out Ashley, um, called Dietland. Um, it was made into a very mediocre Amazon Prime series that mm. didn't capture the kind of radical politics of, of the book at all, but um, it's by a, an author named Sarai Walker and... Um, it is about a fictional dieting program mm. like Weight Watchers and about um, the kind of subject identities that mm. are 
constructed around a program like Weight Watchers mm. and how mm. it makes you think of yourself and how you identify mm. um, as a as like a the the narrator in the novel begins as as a um, she identifies as belonging to this program that she's associated mm-hmm. with her youth and um, and it's a brilliant novel if you mm. haven't read it I highly mm-hmm. recommend it um, and there's something very clever and polished about mm. the business mm. aspect of something like mm. like mm. Weight Watchers. Mm. Mm. Um, and it works, you know, it, people also say that it works for them. So works. there's a really fascinating, mm. it, if it does what it wants you to do, mm. who are we to use critical theory to take it down and say, mm. you know, Weight Watchers should be destroyed and mm-hmm, da da da, da, da mm-hmm. and, and at what point are we kind of being hypocritical and saying, mm. you know, you shouldn't be subject to mm. the, the sort of feelings of self-hate and self-doubt mm. and self-criticism mm. that society makes you feel, you know, critical theory will save you when in fact, you know, you're at Weight Watchers, I've, well, we'll get next week mm. to exercise, mm. um, which is what I've started doing. Do you want to um, do, is there anything about your experience with food that is of relevance here yeah oh, definitely um definitely I, i i grew up obviously grew up in the san francisco mm. bay area i've said that before um i think i sound like that and i've talked before about the kind of the very unique sort of california culture around body policing but also health and it's not just physical health it's also kind of spiritual health mm. and Um, kind of cultivating a, a healthy um, sort of life or environment mm. or like basically curating your best self. It's a mm. sort of Instagram, but before Instagram mm. was Instagram. Mm. You know, that, that was my childhood and my teenage mm. years before social media. Mm. And I've been to, you know, I went to a women's college Before that, I went to a girls' school, extremely privileged place. The young women there, for the most part, were kind of either middle class or extremely wealthy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and or were kind of aspiring middle class. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of environments are, um, they're very competitive. Mm-hmm. They require quite a bit in the way of kind of academic and intellectual prowess Mm. and achievement. And as part of that, it's a whole package. As part of that also, you are required to be physically fit and you are required to consume Mm. down to like the the organic status of your banana and Mm. the fair trade status of your coffee. You're required Mm. to consume only things that make you better mm. or that keep you clean or mm. pure or are kind of good for your progress or growth, yeah. personal growth. Mm. And I mean, it was so insidious. It was there my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, and it's not just me. My family also mm. had these mm-hmm. values. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just that, you know, I was sort of alone in it. It was mm. part of my kind of the discussions. Yeah at home and it yes. wasn't just my mom you know yeah. it was everyone in my family um, my sister talks about uh, going up in size as she gets older she's going up in size you know from like a negative two to a zero these kinds mm. of mm. kinds of um, kind of self comparisons mm-hmm. and, and feelings around um, 
kind of body policing. They're really, really strong and they're just everywhere. They're part of it. Mm. I mean, you know, we would have lunch and um, girls, we'd sit around a table and we'd be chatting about what we learned in class. Some, you know, really clever conversations mm. for 16-year-old girls debating the causes of World War One. You know, not bad. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, someone would step in and be like, oh, everything on your plate is white. Why is everything on your plate white? You should go get some salad. Mm. Like, straight up. That mm. was that was my life. <laughs> and it's not surprising mm. that a number of kind of sociologists, especially feminist sociologists, have done studies in environments like that on mm. eating disorders and the prevalence of eating disorders. The statistics are pretty shocking. Yeah. Um, I mean, up to 50% mm. of women at kind of women's colleges and other women's educational mm. kind of institutions kind of self-declare mm. as mm. having some sort of disordered eating mm. or some mm. sort mm. of relationship with food that mm. is about control or mm. is considered to be abnormal or unhealthy. Mm. Um, and so it's not, I don't think anyone who I grew up with would be surprised mm. to hear me relate any of these stories. Um, Sorry not to interrupt, but yeah. would, they f- would they agree with your assessment that this is problematic or would they question your assessment some definitely would agree and some actually um to give credit where credit's Mm. due Mm. a couple of those women that i have been friends with and Mm. have known for Mm. you know those many years Mm. have actually turned me towards some of this material Mm. some Mm. of the cultural representation that is about Mm. upending and challenging some of these ideas have um, engaged in really productive, really interesting discourse mm, mm. on social media around it, have shared things that mm. have been, you know, really helpful and, and really interesting. Mm. So I am by no means at the kind of mm. the start of this conversation. Mm. But at the same time, mm. it's really difficult to enter a conversation mm. like that with uh, with friends and family mm-hmm. because the groundwork is so complex. In mm. order to get to the point where you can say, Women's bodies tend to change shape as they get older Mm. unless you mess with them Mm. to a a pretty significant extent. Mm. Um, And perhaps you might, you know, find some liberation or comfort Mm. in that fact. Um, It's really, really difficult to intervene. It is Mm. so ingrained. Mm. And it's... It's something that I struggle with hourly. Like I don't, mm. you know, I don't wear makeup to work, and I think it's something that um, it's not something I discuss, but I think it is mm. something that people notice. Mm. I don't wear makeup to work for political mm. political reasons, and mm. also mm. for like lifestyle reasons. I didn't have a lot of money when I was doing my PhD, mm. and makeup is quite expensive. Mm. Mm. Um, and also, I don't think I need to wear makeup in order to do my mm. job effectively. Mm. So. I don't wear it, mm. but it's not something that comes up. But I wonder about it a lot. Mm. And I wonder if I were to get up an hour earlier mm. and put on a certain type mm. of face for the mm. different types of activities I do at work, mm. if it would change the way that people perceive me mm. or if it would change how I think of myself. Yeah. And that's just one. I mean, it depends mm. on the time of year. In the winter, I'm worried very much about flab. Mm. I'm worried very much about getting soft. Mm. Um, I worry constantly about the fit of my jeans. Mm. Um, I am in the summer, the like the perennial question, the bikini wax, mm. when and how mm. and what are other people doing? Mm. 
that is like it's really it's mm. really strong those like feelings mm. of insecurity mm. and self-doubt and mm. oh my god am i gonna subject myself to this mm. um i got contact lenses really early i got contact mm. lenses when i was 10 years old um because i didn't want to have glasses because mm. i was told by um some lady that i thought yeah, that I thought had power in the local community theater mm-hmm. uh, arena in Marin County, which she told me I needed to wear contacts because I wouldn't get casted by a door glasses on stage. Mm-hmm. I got contact lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just there. I mean, mm-hmm. I, like hourly, hourly I think mm-hmm. of something that's mm-hmm. wrong with myself mm-hmm. and come up with some way to fix it. Mm-hmm. And yet... I'm a feminist geographer, according to my Twitter. Mm. Yeah, and I think this is where the, for, perhaps for me, the the different experiences of patriarchy kick in, where I won't say necessarily hourly, but multiple points in a day, I will think about how I weigh more than I should and how I don't look like what I should. But I have enough privilege to not have to try to fix it that very second. Um, patriarchy gives me more space to to not have to worry about how I'm going to be perceived at work mm. if I don't weigh what I should. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a, something like, like weight is distinctive Mm. um i think especially in the sense that and we can talk more next week about how weight in particular is subject to a lot of you know different types Mm. of um kind of prejudice Mm. and oppression and and kind of structural inequalities Mm. um but yeah there's something about being a woman there's it's little things that get Mm. magnified Mm. about your appearance so for a long time, there have been people, multiple people in my life who've commented on the fact that my eyebrows are really messy, that I don't okay. do anything with my eyebrows mm. and that I should because mm. it's annoy- it annoys them that my eyebrows mm. are like not tame or whatever. I'm spending much more time looking at your eyebrows than I think we've ever yeah. had in our, our friendship. Yeah, this is where the podcast sort of falls down. Like yeah. if you can see. <laughs> so the problem with my eyebrows if yes. is that they aren't cleanly shaped. And obviously, there's this, there's trends. So eyebrows go through go through sort of fashion trends. And if you okay. overpluck your eyebrows, yeah. this is this is sort of passed on wisdom from moms. Yeah. If you yeah. overpluck your eyebrows, they won't grow back. Okay. Um, especially certain kind of genetic yeah. makeups, I would yeah. imagine, are more susceptible to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was always told by my mom, do not overpluck your eyebrows because you won't get them back, okay. and then you'll have to draw them on for the rest of your life. So she kind of scared me okay. into thinking like, okay, I need to be mm. careful. If I ever mm. let anyone near mm. them, they can't take too much. Mm. But you can sort of see mm. that at the, towards like the edges mm. here, mm. they get a bit patchier. And you don't want the patch. It should be a clean look. And at various points in history and mm. fashion, the shape of the arch changes mm. in terms mm. of how you want the mm. arch to look and mm. how you want mm. the angle of the front mm. little bit mm. towards mm. your nose and forehead mm. to be shaped. Mm. And there's tons of products 
on the mm. market to help you fix your eyebrows. Mm. Benefit, mm. massive makeup company out of San Francisco, but mm. is here now as well. Mm. Benefit, half of their line right now is all brows. Mm. Mm. And every time I go to a Benefit counter to like re-up on like mm. mascara remover or whatever, they always look at me and they're like, mm. we have some brow products that you might like. Do you do anything with your eyebrows? And I have to, once again, pull out my F card and yeah. be like, Actually, mm. when I was 10, my mom told me that I would lose my eyebrows if I let mm. you touch them, and I'd mm. rather keep them. <laughs> Thank you. Because when I'm 70, mm. and I don't have any hair, mm. I would like to have some eyebrow, right? It's that yeah. kind of daily experience yeah. that I, mm. you and I don't talk about. Mm. And I don't, think, I don't think I tell those mm. kinds of stories to mm. people. And I don't think I tell them to people because I don't think all of my friends would equally share my hmm. perspective. Do you find, do you think that whether, I mean, maybe male colleagues, maybe female colleagues, other academics, do you worry that you will be judged as not a good enough feminist or not a good enough critical theory person because of the things you've just discussed? In geography, no. Yeah. In geography, no, and that's because geography departments are quite a broad church. Yeah. So I have one colleague, um, currently a really wonderful colleague, mm. who loves fashion mm. and always looks mm. impeccable. Mm. Her clothing choices are unique. They're really clever. Mm. Um, they're she's just mm. she's amazing at fashion, mm. and that's one colleague. Mm. I have other colleagues who wear socks and sandals mm. to work, mm. who wear hiking boots to work. Mm. Um, Plenty of academic women that I know have refused to dye their hair. Mm. Others have dyed their hair forever mm, 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 mm. Um, and will continue mm, until mm, after mm, they retire. Mm. Um, so it just, in geography, it's yeah. less, mm. you don't have to prove a sort of critical theory card mm. in the same way. And that, and that's when it gets fascinating, right? Because, I'm, I mean, I've certainly been in critical theory departments. I'm sure you are aware of or have been in departments where... It's almost like the body fascism gets reversed. Yes. And of course, it, it, you know, in the way there is no such thing as reverse sexism and reverse racism or whatever. It's not, it's not reversed and it's not equal and opposite. But there are set up alternative rules of appearance that you have to follow. Uh, whether in terms of weight or in terms of physical appearance or makeup or yeah, clothes dress, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so if you, unless you look a particular way in terms of, you know, whether you're fat or whether you are, if you if you are, uh, embrace fat and as part of a fat positive movement, uh, that can often dip over into someone being looked at suspicious suspiciously if they're not fat. Yeah. Yeah, mm. there's, I think, well, what's interesting about that is in the, the kind of micro community mm. of a department like that or a kind of academic community like that is mm. the people who are able to police that mm. most freely yeah. are the people who sit in positions of power in the yeah. wider academic yeah. hierarchy. So yeah. women professors mm. especially get to have the freedom mm. to challenge those mm. sorts of kind of aesthetic norms, the kind of white supremacist patriarchal kind mm. of aesthetic norms around being thin and blonde and with clear skin and whatever, mm. whatever, because they have been through the processes that would subject them to those power structures already mm. and mm. have been mm. successful. Processes like tenure in North mm. America or 
um, processes like promotion here in the UK, they no longer need to balance in the same way mm. because the the hierarchy or the institution protects them mm. and it mm. protects their academic work. Mm. So they have a little bit more mm. kind of power mm. to kind of put forward mm. a sort of new approach, whatever that might be, a sort mm. of new mm. politics in mm. the community that they provide leadership mm. in. Mm. For younger women, it's a far more, you know, men as well are subject to this, and especially men of color. Yes. But yeah, the less the less protected you are by the academic hierarchy, mm. the less able you are to use that to protect yourself mm. from the wider structures mm. at play. I feel like. So, is this a l- failure of critical theory? Is this a limit point of critical theory? What what does what does it say about theory as an approach to study the world? Where that. It gives us the tools to diagnose and identify the problems caused by regulation without giving us the tools to effectively resist it when it comes to ourselves. Yeah. Well, because there's a couple of things at work. So I mm. use critical theory, but I also use science yeah. and I use evidence-based yeah. thinking. Mm to critique. So it's not just critical theory that allows us mm. to critique some of this. There's yeah. also a lot of really interesting scientific mm. work mm. and kind of interdisciplinary work that includes scientific studies around mm. the actual relationship mm. between food mm. and body weight mm. and health. Mm. Um, there's, you know, a lot of scientific work actually doesn't know anything about mm. nutrition mm. and kind of says that actually a lot of the assumptions that we make mm. about what's good for us and what isn't good for us mm. actually is is false mm. when mm. looked at you know at the mm. population level for example mm. Mm. and so it's not just critical theory that i look to mm. but neither one mm. changes how i feel mm. when i eat what's the, the food that i eat that i feel the most guilty about whenever i eat fast food definitely mm. Which isn't that often, but mm. I've started to care less, mm. um, like on road trips and stuff. Mm-hmm. If I want a Big Mac, that's what I'll eat. Mm. Um, but yeah, the really classic kind mm. of like cheeseburger and French fries. Mm-hmm. That is, and after I eat it, I feel mm. really, really guilty. Yeah, and I feel awful about myself. And neither science nor theory explains that. No, and can't, mm. can't doesn't provide me with the path Mm. to being liberated from Mm. the feelings Mm. the feelings remain yeah and this is i mean this it's certainly a stretch here because i'm i'm adapting the reading uh from some something completely relevant um one of my favorite thinkers i don't know if we've ever ever talked about her on the podcast before Mm reload um the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and she's talking about race and racism and the idea that white privilege will never voluntarily make space for the kind of voices, the kind of discourses, the kind of activism that is that is needed in order to dismantle white privilege. That's specifically what she's talking about and the, the intersections of, of patriarchy and white privilege. Um, but I think it applies here that 
critical theory will give us enough tools to be able to work out the problems in terms of what hegemony asks of us, demands of us. But critical theory on its own, no, no system of knowledge, no structure, no, no handed down body of thought with all its hierarchies and uh, structures will give us, on its own, give us the tools we need to dismantle the hegemonic demands. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, about some sort of public-facing mm. writers and mm. Um, mm. activists mm. and mm. kind of more artistic and creative people mm. who in the last probably 15 years mm. have written more in the, the kind of mainstream, yeah. more kind of online mm. world mm. Um, about body positivity mm. and have written from a less academic mm. and more activist perspective about mm. the experience of learning how to love yourself. Mm. Thinking specifically of Lindy West, who's mm. doing a lot of this work at uh, Jezebel, for example, but also a lot of the women that work for the, and have written for Bitch Media mm -hmm. um, and um, others too, um, who have articulated what it's like to feel love for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I do feel like it's, po I feel like it's possible, mm -hmm. but obviously I can't get into their minds and mm -hmm. work mm -hmm. out their process mm -hmm. by which they move negative thoughts to yeah. one side and what it feels like when a negative thought arrives to them and how they experience eating yeah. like on a day-to-day -day basis and mm -hmm. how they... Mm -hmm you know, experience clothes shopping, mm. for example, what it is that they do mm. kind of moment by moment to love themselves. This is fascinating and it's perhaps a quite an inappropriate comparison, but listening to you makes me think that every time, I, I, as someone who has no particular religious faith, um, every time I listen to people talking about their religious faith, I can't comprehend it unless they make space for doubt. And I think there's something similar going on here. In other words, I can't conceive of any any adherence to any any way of being that relies ultimately on faith in such a complete way that you don't doubt yourself. And that's sort of what we're talking about here, isn't it? It's to what extent can you embrace body positivity as as an example? Yeah. Can, how far can you embrace it so that you've removed all doubt? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of... And I, I love reading mm. a lot of the body positivity kind of mm. activist writing and, mm. and intellectual mm. writing online. Mm. And, and the body positivity movement, I think, really does come out of anti-racist feminist mm. work as well. Mm. And, yeah, the, the kind of... Um, the intersection of, of race and body positivity mm. is certainly something that I can't mm. access from the same mm. perspective. And it is something that I just, yeah, I want to be able to feel. Like mm. I know it intellectually mm -hmm. and I know it when I see it mm. 
on others. So mm. one of the things that I've noticed and that got me really interested when you started talking about Weight Watchers a few years ago mm. was I had started noticing that, that a lot of the academic women that I was working mm. with, mm. Uh, people who were my role models, so mm. women who were kind of 10, 20 years older than me, women who are experts in their field, some of the most accomplished people in the world, mm talking about would throw into random conversation after explaining some really complicated, really cool new thing that they were doing, mm. some new kind of funding proposal they were going to put in, or some idea they had. They would then, like five minutes later, be talking about how fat they were mm. or how ugly they were mm. or how they hadn't been running so much and they feel really flabby and mm. how their jeans mm. don't fit. And I was just like, what? Mm. How is it that... You, f you know, feel so much kind of self-doubt and mm. self-hate. Mm. You're my role models. You're my idols. I, you know, mm. I mm. want to be mm. you. Mm. But I'm looking at you and I'm seeing mm. really talented, really clever, and to mm. me, really beautiful women. Mm. 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 And that I found really impactful mm. because I look at them and I see pretty women. I, mm. I, mm. I, I don't see fat women. I do, and mm. and I would be like, "You're not fat," and they would be like, "I am." You're just being nice. Mm. Like seriously, I'm fucking not being nice. Mm -hmm. I'm not that nice. Mm. Like, I would like smile and nod mm. if you know if I didn't think that you were beautiful. Like, mm. What's going on here? Mm. So I can see it, mm. and I can feel it changing in my own mind towards yeah. others. Yeah. So I can feel it change certainly from how I probably would have looked at a person who would be considered by doctors to be obese when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And I can f actually feel a difference in my own perception of mm -hmm. them now. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I can't translate that back to myself. Yeah. Yes. I can't either. Yeah. And how is it that we have a podcast where we like tell the world about what's racist and what's misogynist mm. and what's classist mm. and what's fascist and yet here we are three yeah. years later i've been lifting weights at the gym trying really hard to make my arms look less flabby mm. like seriously that's that's what i'm doing you've been weight watching you also have been to the gym yeah we've been kind of on a journey and it's not a journey that we talk about no publicly no. or as part of our academic work it's something that we talk about as friends yeah and we will come back to this uh, journey to do with exercise and, and fitness uh, as the other half of this Sculpting the Ideal Body uh, project in our next week's episode. Like us. Tweet at us. Let us know what you think. Let us know if our experiences match up with yours or if they don't. Uh, let us know if, you, if we are wrong. Um... And we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians. And this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?